Hi and welcome to the Imperial Sports Business Podcast where we aim to demystify careers in the sports industry by engaging in conversations with leaders and innovators working in sports and industries adjacent to sports. So join us as we dive deep into stories, insights and experiences that make the business of sports an exhilarating and ever evolving field. Today we have with us Matthew Barrett, the founder of Goalclick, a social business that allows people to tell their own stories, um, or in other words, share stories from the first-person perspective. Um, they work with brands, clubs, federations, tournaments, leagues to create original storytelling across various different formats. Um, their work is really, really compelling, and I highly encourage you to check it out. Um, they have amazing stories from Mexico, Rwanda, Jordan, India, all over the world, really. Um, the underlying premise is football, and I feel through that they're able to actually address so much more than that. Um, so welcome, Matt, and maybe we can begin with a little bit of an intro on your background um, and how this love affair with sports began. Thank you. That was an amazing introduction. I feel like <laughs> you don't even need me. Um, that was... Uh, that I've been was, stalking you. Spot on. Um, I almost couldn't say it better myself. Um, yes. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I am Matthew Barrett, the founder of Goldclick. And yeah, we um, Goldclick has been uh, a hobby, a passion project, a side hustle, a second job, and now a full time job uh, for me ever since it was devised 10 years ago. Um, but it was devised whilst I was working in the sports industry uh, on the agency side. So after university, I worked for a number of different agencies within the WPP network, um, mm -hmm. starting with Hill and Knowlton, um, then moving to ESP and then to Circles. So that was the first nine years of my career. And then GoalClick had been growing and being incubated on the side whilst I was doing that. And in 2018, I decided to go full time on that. Um, and I guess that's my second career um, mm -hmm. in the sports world. Uh, and yeah, I am personally from the London area uh, and have always uh, been interested in sport and playing it and interested in history, politics, culture, society, and it was only at university that I realised that I could put those together. Uh, and mm -hmm. so began this journey, which has snowballed towards Goal Click. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyone who knew me when I was 19 or 20 is not surprised at what has happened. Mm. It's, it's interesting, uh, the sort of transition from being a history student to getting into sports. Was that like... Was it planned? Did it just kind of happen? I was very lucky that I had a college professor mm -hmm. who saw the connection and suggested it to me during my second year of university. Mm -hmm. As I said, I was, you know, doing a lot of sport on the side, outside the classroom, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Like playing and, sport. Uh, playing sport, yeah. Mm -hmm. And organising and being involved in the sports kind of community. And then I've always been a 20th century European history, predominantly um, focused student. Mm -hmm. And he suggested to me that there was a way to combine these two things, uh, which I'd never considered before. Yeah. And if it wasn't for him, I don't think I'd be doing Cold Click right now. Mm. Um, but it, for the first time, allowed me to see that 
where there was geopolitics or conflict or interesting social issues within a society, sport could be that lens through which to enter the subject. Mm. And I ended up writing my thesis on sport in the British Army uh, and the effect on morale during the Second World War. And then at any opportunity to uh, answer a question about, I guess, social history, um, mm. I would always default to using sport as my lens. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, sport and communism, sport and fascism, sport uh, and democracy, kind of always trying to use that as my lens. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, after university, I you know, had dreams of telling these kind of stories. Um, and I think I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker or a journalist, mm-hmm. but never really found the right entry point into that. Uh, ended up going into the commercial sports world, um, which I really, really loved. But always beneath the surface was that scratch. Like mm-hmm. I want to be telling these kind of stories, which are, you know, more interesting about the human experience and yeah, politics and culture and warfare and what are these sports stories that can allow us to understand these issues um, more easily. And so yeah, I was writing a bit on the side always thinking I I wanted to do this kind of idea and eventually 2013 um, myself and my co-founder Ed Jones had this slightly crazy idea uh, to give disposable cameras to people all around the world and get them to document their own lives through through football Um, and for me that was the moment where I finally had an execution to match the idea I think Mm -hmm. I was yeah an idea in search of an execution and I think Goal Click has, has been that for me personally. So was there sort of like a moment in time where you sort of remember meeting Gopan and kind of working on an idea? Was there an idea already? Was was there basically like a Eureka moment where you were just like, oh my God, this is what I have to do? Or was it? I knew this was the type of subject matter I was interested in. So I remember during the Arab Spring, uh, doing my own personal study into what uh, was going on in football within the countries being affected by the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. But it was all relatively traditional way of going about it. Mm-hmm. There's no real difference to how a journalist would approach the subject. Mm-hmm. So when... Um, myself, my co-founder Ed, we were working together at the time and we were brainstorming some ideas at work. And when Ed started talking about analogue film photography as an execution to allowing people from around the world to tell their own stories, for me, it was that eureka, own, eureka moment around this could be the format in order to tell the kind of stories that I was interested in. And it's no surprise that the first wave of goal click stories included amputee footballers in Sierra Leone, football for reconciliation in Rwanda, football on the border of Islamic State controlled areas in Iraq, uh, football with um, former child soldiers in Liberia, as well as the more fan focused or player focused stories that we found in Australia and Peru and, um, and the UK. But there was a real core at the heart of Gold Click from the very early stages that was about telling these richer, deeper stories where geopolitics met sport. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I have actually a lot of questions on the, the actual execution of these stories and how you're going about that. But before that, mm-hmm. I kind of want to talk about what you mentioned in terms of trying to find this sort of perfect intersection of your, your I'd say, two passions of history and sort of sport um, is very relatable for me because for me as well, like when I'm looking um, when I'm looking at anything, I'd say I'm trying to look at it from an arts point of view or with, with that sort of lens. Um, and I'm also very interested in, let's say, ethnomusicology and trying to look at look at what, how music was affecting everything else that was happening in the world. Um, but I feel like what I kind of lack was a mentor, sort of anyone to who who followed this path, um, because you, I'm guessing as well, like you don't have a very conventional path where you're like, okay, I'm working as a banker or consultant, and then I become senior manager, and then I become CEO. You know, it's then you've had to figure it out. Um, so, so in your early years in the sports industry, like how were you figuring out what is the right thing for you to do? Wow, that is a really good question. <laughs> there was not much of a pathway for me I don't think mm. when I first entered the sports world I remember feeling that my school my university my parents everyone around me didn't compute that I wanted to work in sport I had no idea how to get into it I had no one I knew that worked in the industry I remember applying for all sorts of wrong jobs <laughs> um, the sports industry is not like that anymore there are so many pathways it's very obvious mm. to know who the good organizations are and who and how to apply for them mm. so 20 years ago it just wasn't the case so mm. i did feel at the time that i was slightly walking blindly mm. <laughs> um and not really knowing exactly where to land i was very lucky that i applied for a graduate scheme at my first agency hill and Knowlton. But it wasn't a sports graduate um, position. It was a general position. And Mm -hmm. someone in their HR department saw my CV, saw that I'd done some sport and ran me up and offered Mm -hmm. me a week of work experience. And I didn't leave Mm -hmm. for six years. So I didn't have that kind of sports industry mentor. Mm -hmm. And I have been slightly making it up as I go along (laughs) since. And I actually really lean into that. Because mm-hmm. I think that people can be very scared to start something if they don't mm-hmm. have it all worked out first. And I generally believe that nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> and it can be quite liberating when you realise that everyone's ultimately making up as they go along to the best of their ability based on their previous experiences mm-hmm. and what knowledge they have. There is no correct path to what we've created with gold clip um and i think that be can be quite freeing actually so yeah in a way i've leaned into having that that lack of guidance i had um early and i want to provide guidance to other people but i think the first thing i ever say is you know there isn't that perfect route or that perfect way of doing things and i think that um there can be a lot of walls put up and a lot mm-hmm. of quite damaging narrative, particularly mm-hmm. in the kind of founding community or from CEOs saying that, oh, you know, clearly I have special skills and clearly mm-hmm. I know exactly what I'm doing to have created such a wonderful organisation. Yeah. I, I don't really subscribe to that mm-hmm. notion. Um, 
as I think my journey shows. Yeah, well, it's it's tough being an entrepreneur, especially in the kind of space that that you're in. Um, and I feel like yeah, people do, people don't recognize that. And and of course, I feel like it's it's easy to say do what you love to do and follow your passion. But actually, when you're when you're doing it, it it's it's a lot harder, and it's actually a lot of work that perhaps you don't want to do. Um, so so I'm curious, like in terms of even you working for let's say companies like ESP, I believe, Two Circles, mm-hmm. working here mm-hmm. in Norton. Um, what was it like to actually switch and say, okay, I want to quit my job, potentially a stable salary and, and work on as an entrepreneur? I learned some amazing things at those organizations. I saw some massive successes. I saw some huge failures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the failures are often more useful to experience mm-hmm. than the successes. Um, I felt like I had taken everything I could take from those organizations. I think it really gave me a sense of problem solving at pace. That was definitely something that I feel really strongly I got from those agency experiences. I think it's a great place to be in your 20s, to be in the agency world, and I'd recommend it to everybody. But I think that it was barely a decision that I had to make. It was so obvious and so inevitable that I would have to do Gold Creek full time. However, I really, really, really strongly believe that if I'd have just left without Gold Click already being a semi-viable concept, yeah. it would have been incredibly difficult and mm. put even more pressure to succeed. Whereas we'd been able to test some things with Gold Click. We'd already had our first partner on board in Adidas, like before I made the big switch. And I think that knowing there was a viable concept, it wasn't a viable business at the time, that mm. still had to happen, but the concept was viable and doing that on the side of a day job whilst very tiring and very time consuming um it definitely allowed me to um set things up in the right way and know that there was something to chase and strive for and that it wasn't just a complete leap into the unknown because i think anyone that just leaps into the unknown without testing beforehand is well good luck yeah that's a different risk appetite, I guess. So totally. We want to do totally. That. Um, so yeah, it didn't ever feel like a didn't feel like a a risky decision, even though it was a risky decision, because I didn't feel like I had any other choice. To be mm. honest. Interesting. Uh, you said there was sort of some validation in terms of the concept when you found a partner in Adidas. Mm-hmm. What was the point at which you thought, okay, there's actually a business in there, or if you could actually break down a little bit how the business works? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, about half of our work that we do is storytelling that we just want to do. We do it pro bono. We work with interesting individuals and charities and organizations all around the world. The other half of what we do is commissioned collaborations um, where we work with brands, clubs, governing bodies, federations, and they commission us to create original storytelling series in our style and using our mm-hmm. network. In 2016, Adidas um funded our first ever exhibition and as part of that we did a series with them focused on London football culture and that was the first time we had been given money to do a bespoke storytelling series for our partner and that is the first part of our journey and since then we've worked with many 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 other organizations but ultimately that model is still the same 
being commissioned ultimately to create content for a partner in our style using our methodology and the network that we have and creating it for them and their channels as well as ours. So that's how we do it. And yeah, starting with Adidas is a pretty good start. <laughs> yeah, how did that how did that come about? Adidas were an organization I knew very well from my first job at Hill and Nelson. Um, okay. And so, yeah, I knew who the right people to speak to were. Um, and uh, it wasn't a huge amount of money, um, but it was enough to prove the concept. Uh, and in terms of now, the typical sort of client or partner for you is brands, or is it also sort of um, organizations? Who, where's the, where's um, the money? A mixture. Um, I'd say, yeah. Ideally, 50% brands, 50% rights holders. So whether that be mm. federa- confederation like CONCACAF or mm. um, a league like the Premier League or a foundation or charity like UNICEF, yeah, it's a mixture of brands and sports organisations. Uh, and how receptive are these brands and sports organisations to your sort of design aesthetic? Because I, I love it personally with the analogue photography and stuff, but it's, it's, it's sort of left and very niche and very like artsy. Um, yeah. perhaps right am I right to say that so, so how, how receptive are they to this well I think if you approach it from an artistic perspective and you could get yourself pigeonholed quite quickly but what mm-hmm. we do is we approach it is that what we're doing is first person storytelling 99% of storytelling is still very traditional you send in a film crew you send in a photographer you send in a uh, journalist in many cases it's often a western person into yeah. a non-western environment and you tell stories about people and that's fine there's some amazing work (laughs) there's some great storytelling that goes on in the world what we do is just flip that around and we give agency and a platform to the people themselves who are experiencing their own worlds to tell the story as they see it and if you remove what the formats are you remove if it's analog photography or video on a smartphone or written word or spoken word what it really boils down to is we're wanting to hear more real more authentic stories from the people who are actually experiencing them and that i believe is compelling to any organization because most have realized that that's the way forward and we often describe ourselves as a mixture between user-generated content and mm-hmm. traditional documentary storytelling what we're doing i think is we're taking the best of both worlds it does feel user generated but it's in a coherent storytelling form yeah. and i guess you just have to look at the people we're working with once these organizations understand what we're doing it's very attractive to them mm. um, and yeah we find the issue is more that people knowing who we are rather than thinking this is not a great methodology to use so uh then the next layer down from that is okay and how do you tell these stories um we have these range of formats and one of our most famous is using analog disposable cameras which is really cool really great really different the aesthetic feels really raw and powerful um but we're certainly the concept we're selling is first person storytelling through a variety of means in a variety of places and we try and avoid getting bogged down in the aesthetic and more in the overall method. Mm. But 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 there is a, a strong sense of aesthetic though, and and oh, you maintained it through the campaigns. 
absolutely you know yeah. it's raw it's raw it's real yeah. and the use of 35 millimeter photography is one of the best examples of that equally you know someone writing in a very raw and powerful way or speaking in a raw and powerful way or filming on their phone in quite a you know quite a rough and ready style like yeah. these are all ways of like bringing like a sense of realness and intimacy to the stories and yeah the the analog style photography is probably the best realization of that because these photos look so different and than kind of most other photos that you see which are often heavily stylized or yeah lacking power yeah lacking that little bit of you know texture i feel yeah Exactly. Yeah. Um well, sorry if this is a stupid question, but are you actually sending the film cameras to let's say a country far and away and then how are you actually receiving the rolls back? Yeah. Uh we send out cameras to 150 plus countries and mm-hmm. we pay for them to be sent back. It's actually not as expensive as you would think. Obviously, we are a remote organization. We don't travel um yeah. to do these projects. again when we're talking to the potential partners that's the moment at which people go oh this is different mm. because often they'll hear what we have to say and they'll say so when you're on the ground how does that and we're like no 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 <laughs> yeah we don't we don't travel um we just allow the people in those places to tell their story so yeah we will send out using regular mail if it's to a particularly difficult place to reach we might use the hl or another courier service and then we get the cameras back but to be honest it's not actually as expensive an endeavor as you would think um mm. to get the cameras there and back and uh yeah you know some get lost along the way but that's part of the fun so mm. um we've generally found that that's less of an issue these days um mm. and it's still something really beautiful about giving someone a physical object and to use Absolutely. and to be really intentional with it and to send it back um you'd be surprised how many people are drawn to the project still because of the use of those disposable cameras I'm sure. Uh and in terms of also like you mentioned sort of like having to educate the client a little bit on on the value. Uh I imagine that 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 must be a little bit of an issue because a lot of times people you're speaking to at these organizations may not have um well experience or, or an eye for designing let's say. Um so so how is that a challenge A and B um where do you see yourself like competing with other marketing companies or other design companies who who's a competitor uh, for you honestly the issue is that we don't have any competitors and but the flip side of that is it can be harder to explain what we are because because i genuinely believe we are a one off we are this slightly odd mixture of a, a network of of people in every country in the world that we can tap into a production house in a way in that we produce this content in a very specific method and you know a platform as well that kind of tells these stories to the world so there is no other organization that does this certainly not in sport certainly not in football and certainly not with a complete rigorous focus on first person you know even some of the other organizations that we admire like a copper 90 or a 90 min or a football co like often it is still a professional journalist or creator creating content about people even yeah. if they're very close to them this is completely handing over the power <laughs> mm-hmm. um so we don't really have any competitors 
but it doesn't mean there's often a higher level of education process needed to really make sure people understand what we're trying to do um and that's a challenge for us you know we spend a lot of time refining our story you know you described it at the start of this whole uh, piece perfectly well and if everyone understood it like you understood it then we'd be we'd be in a great place so it does take that extra moment to get people to truly engage with like why we're different um yeah. but i think once people understand gold quick people really love it and we get repeat business you know we've done four projects with adidas we've done three projects with hummel we've done three mm -hmm. projects with the premier league we you know we 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 have people come back and mm -hmm. because they know that they can't do it themselves and there's no one else really committed to this kind of process in the same way mm. so so in terms of these um sort of clients coming back to you are, are they expecting some sort of metrics for well what are your metrics for success when is a campaign successful mm -hmm. It's interesting because I would say we definitely sit and uh, um, at a certain point along the marketing funnel, which is probably more around awareness and, uh, you know, the telling of a brand story. You know, we're, we're, we're probably not at the conversion <laughs> end mm. of the funnel. Um, you know, I would never want gold click stories to be on the hook for converting people into a product user or something like that. Um, I think something that is underrated is the ability we have to create stronger bonds between um, organizations and the people they're already working with within the ecosystem. Let me give you an example. With Adidas, we work on their Breaking Barriers project, which is uh, where they work with lots of women across Europe um, who are leaders in their communities and kind of advocating for women and girls playing sport. And a project like what we do allows Adidas to actually not just support them financially or with curriculum, but actually like engage them with a specific project. And we measure what our storytellers feel and think about a process and um, the skills they learn and really that we measure their journey. And so that's one metric that we measure our measure our work by. And then obviously, you know, this is predominantly for social media and digital channels. We often don't get that data, as you can imagine. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah. that's that's you know largely kept on the channels of the of the partners and they mm. know what does well and what doesn't. But we've had some we've definitely seen some great results before from some of the partners we worked with where the content beat the kind of targets that it was looking to beat. We know this content is not like clickbait. Yeah. It's not goals. It's not highlights. <laughs> you know, it, it can't compete with that. Mm -hmm. But there is a place for deeper, richer storytelling as part of the marketing mix. And so I think that's where that's where we provide value. Um, and then there's also in-person experiences. So we do a lot of exhibitions. We've just started doing live spoken storytelling events. I think that there is still a real appetite for live in-person events and connections. And, and I think our content plays a really significant role um, in doing so with a lot of organizations that we work with. Yeah, I feel like now more than ever, there's an appetite for, for offline connections, given kind of what's happened in the past. Uh, am I right to just to sort of close the loop on, on how the business works? Am I right to assume that the money is coming in from these partners and these brands, uh, but in terms of 
uh, these passion projects also i'm calling them passion projects sorry but but these sort of projects from countries or places we call, um, call them impact we call them impact projects or originals in, projects yeah sorry yeah impact projects that's a better way of putting it um these impact projects so it's almost like you're funding these projects through the brands and the partnerships the the money we bring in from those collaborations and funded projects allow us to yeah. devote our resource and money to doing the more impactful projects yes uh, and how big is the team how what, what's next what's on yeah. the horizon so we are a remote team of nine people all around the world um four of us are based in the uk the rest are based in various other countries i think that's a pretty that's a number we like yeah. i don't think we necessarily want to become a kind of a, a bloated team we like yeah. being quite nimble the biggest expansion for us this year is definitely into other sports. So we've mm-hmm. always been football first and we probably will continue to be, but about a quarter of our work is now in other sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is a trend that will continue. Um, the evolution of formats, obviously uh, photography and written word was where we started. Video was added about three years ago. Spoken has been added as of a few months ago. Uh, we did our mm-hmm. first live storytelling event in Miami. We have plans for more. Uh, so that's very exciting. And, you should definitely check it out on our social mm-hmm. channels. It's a really powerful method of storytelling. Um, so, yeah, to continue evolving those formats, lean into those new formats in particular. And then really, I think, you know, the Americas is yeah. where a lot of our um, focus is now because previously we've been predominantly a UK, European and Middle East um, organisation in terms of where we generate our revenue with all of these sports events and particularly the football events that are arriving on the shores of North America and Central America, men's world cup, women's world cup, gold cup, Copa America. Yeah. A lot of our focus is currently on, on the Americas and particularly the CONCACAF region. Our biggest partner last year was CONCACAF. We worked on a fan focused project, um, documenting heritage and cultural identity around the CONCACAF region. Yeah, we think there are going to be plenty of opportunities for us in the in the coming years in in a, in the states and the wider um, North America, Central America, Caribbean region. So, yeah, that's probably where our focus is right now. And obviously, um, doing great work with new partners. Um, and uh, something else that we've increasingly found ourselves doing, which is really cool, is that often organisations will come to us just to find interesting stories. We don't mm-hmm. necessarily even sometimes do the content now um, yeah. because our network is so vast and a living, breathing, you know, organic network. And it's all right. Uh, we often help organizations find storytellers um, that we already know. But how, how do you actually find these stories? Uh, is it um, people writing into you or the other way? Around? Good old fashioned hustle, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, for 10 years, have gone down the rabbit hole, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. the work that we do opens doors to us, to communities and people who in turn yeah. open doors to us, to other communities and other people. And when we come knocking, people can see the work and how we how we create it. And I think we're a very trusted and yeah. um, welcome partner. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone can look at our work and think, oh, we should be a bit suspicious of this organisation because... You can see that we put our storytellers first and that we are an organization that's very, I think, quite humble in that regard. And so um, I'm very collaborative. 
So I think that generally people feel very comfortable connecting us on to others in their community. And yeah, over the 10 year periods, that has created a, a huge, huge network of people in almost every country in the world that we know we can go to with one WhatsApp message and say, we're looking for X, Y, Z. Um, who should we speak to? That's amazing. Um, so I'll just go into the last little bit that I wanted to speak to you about, which was um, kind of forecasting a little bit on the trends that you see coming. And then we'll talk a little bit about where you think people like me who are students looking looking to get into the industry aim our efforts towards. Um, so say what has been what, what has been kind of, of course, a lot has changed in the last eight to nine years that you worked in the sports industry. But now where do you see the trends going in terms of new sports, also in terms of developing countries? Um, catching up, let's say, um, well, uh, women's sport being sort of like the next big thing where all the money is going in. Um, yeah, what, what are some of the trends that, that you find particularly interesting? I mean, the obvious answer for me would be to talk about the <laughs> focus on um, you know, first-person storytelling. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, I generally do think that the pandemic has accelerated that trend, and especially with elements of um, you know, sustainability, I just don't think you can send like film crews across the world anymore for both moral and financial reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, we worked with UNICEF this year and the reason they loved it so much is because they didn't have to send Western photographers to programs in Namibia and South Africa. And it took a child centered approach and um, yeah. so much more powerful more ethical and better financially <laughs> and yes. better content. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think that is a trend that has been accelerated by um, the pandemic. These old ways of thinking and these institutionalized models of creating content have to go. Mm-hmm. We just did a project with UK Sport that was about reimagining their awards night content. And, you know, think about awards nights. I don't know if you've ever been to any, but are they exciting? Um, well there you go um and so the content that was created for awards night was about getting the people who had nominated the nominees to do the storytelling about the nominees it was so much more impactful than the classic piece the camera you know replicated 30 times you know with with the live events that i just mentioned to you i mean Oh, I mean, I think the state of imagination around creating events at the moment in the sports industry is, is pretty poor. I mean, it's a Q&A panel. There's no debate. It's just... That's true. It's just boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not saying that there isn't place for some traditional elements of, like, events and conferences, but surely mm-hmm. we can find room for a slightly more engaging way of creating content at events. And whether it is this kind of live spoken storytelling or whether it's a debate or whether it's, you know, something that's just a bit more dynamic and interesting so that people aren't just scrolling on their phones. I think I say all of this because I think so often we're just in default mode that just because something has happened for so long in a certain way, that's just how we're meant to do it. And I think a question that I often ask myself is, you know, is this enjoyable? (laughs) Yeah. And if it isn't enjoyable, then it probably needs to change. Um, I don't think enough people come at it from a consumer or fan or audience perspective. 
think for a long time people have created things from a stakeholder or athlete or organization perspective what do we want that's very and true. i think the the shift is that you're not going to exist anymore if you don't like listen to what's changing and what fans are telling you and what audiences are telling you and you know this is something that two circles talk about all the time. <laughs> I mean, you've got to change. Um, yeah. And you've got to question the assumptions of previous ways of doing things. Um, it, is, is there like a, is there a battle then? Because content is also really short lived now. Uh, you, you know, you're working on something for a long, long period of time, especially as a boutique sort of agency. Uh, and then, I mean, Eventually, it ends up becoming that something that comes up on someone's feed for a day, they scroll past it and never, it just disappears on the internet completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas on the other hand, as you rightly said, there's a need for it to be a lot more real and for content to not just be content for content's sake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then how do, how, do you, how do you find a balance between that? I still feel, if you look at the numbers in terms of how much time people are spending watching for long periods on YouTube, on TikTok, listening to podcasts, there is an audience that wants to watch things for a long time if it's good. But there's a lot of noise. And I sometimes think that maybe it isn't completely about um, length or attention span and it's actually just quality. Now, obviously, you know, you need to be able to put things in the right places. But I think it's way too reductive to say, oh, no one can concentrate anymore. I mean, again, small example, the hour-long event that we did in Miami, no one was on their phone, everyone was locked in, everyone was crying. Mm-hmm. I've been to 15-minute events where everyone's on their phone. So I don't think it's a length thing. I think it's a quality thing. Well. That's super interesting. Um, last question uh, for you, and thank you so much. This this whole podcast has been absolutely amazing and very inspiring. Um, but the last question is for someone who is currently studying marketing or let's say business, somewhere in their twenties, no prior experience in sport, but a passion for sport and a will and desire to get into sport. What do you think is something they can do? Because a lot of times, um, you're expected to walk into these industries with prior experience in these industries, but uh, that's hard to get. Um, so kind of what's, what's your take on that? Where can we go? What do we do? How do we become you? Wow. That's really hard. <laughs> that's a really, really hard question. Mm, um, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, not at all. You yeah. didn't. I knew it was, I knew it was coming. <laughs> um, whenever I have a, inbound message from someone young um who has who wants to reach out and like ask me questions i get very frustrated when it's very generic Mm -hmm. it's really not hard to see what gold click does and what we do and if you google me you can find a lot out about me quite quickly The individuals who've clearly taken more than five minutes to do their research and provide a really clear um, reason why they want to talk to me and pick my brains, 
those are the people I'm very willing to give some time to. If they haven't, I will often reply, what questions do you want to ask me? And often they won't even, they won't even know. So come, if you want to speak to someone in the industry who's like, who's obviously very, got, you know, not that much time, if you can be really specific with why you want to speak to them and what things you want to talk to them about, it's actually a pleasure when someone's taken the time to really like do the research and understand. So I see it so often, just uh, I'd like to talk to you about you and your journey. Why? What, what specifically do you want to know? Because that could be a four hour conversation. <laughs> um, so I think if you're reaching out to people, mm-hmm. like, don't necessarily think always about what you want, but think about what they might want to tell you. Um, so that's my first piece of advice. Go specific um, when you're reaching out to people in the industry. Um, I mean, that second point is, you know, treat, you know, your early forays into the industry is like just learning as much as you can and research, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of different avenues in the sports industry now. Um, and the more people you can talk to, the better. Sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised how many people don't. Um, and then, you know, I come back to the point I said earlier, uh, I think understand that, you know, it might seem like you have to have loads and loads of expertise and specific training to kind of create something in sports or get to a certain level. But I actually feel like, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for just, diving in and being proactive and being diligent and you don't necessarily need all the qualifications in the world and to have like you know there's no set ways of doing things necessarily anymore we definitely look for often for attitudes um over necessarily aptitudes when we're hiring people um because we're pretty confident we can teach people everything pretty fast if they've got the right attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what we do is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's about good, clear, quick communications. Yeah. Here's the thing. When we're hiring people, anyone who doesn't reply within 24 hours is removed from the process. <laughs> so, because like, it tells you so much more about someone's attitude and diligence than necessarily what they've learned or their skills. So, for me, I think that um, you know, an attitude can go a lot further sometimes than aptitude. And I think that people often forget that and think that all we want to know is what they've learned or what their skills are. Mm-hmm. I think actually sometimes the softer skills are way more important because a lot of things can be torn or work, taught or worked out um, if you've got the right kind of viewpoint. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I find myself guilty, honestly, of the first thing that you mentioned. Well, a lot of times I've reached out to people that hasn't been very sort of directed or structured. And I've definitely, um, there's something to learn in there for sure. Yeah. You don't, I mean, you don't want to be wasting people's time. The great example is you'll reach out to me for this podcast. And then we're getting a bit meta here. 
it mm. was very clear, concise, quick, to the point and I saw the value of it. And it, it was a really quick exchange. It was like, yes, it sounds great. I'd love to. Mm. Because I, I saw like, that you've done your research, that it was a very clear ask. Uh, I mean, maybe that's easier than some other, some other, but it shouldn't be. It's still like, I would like to speak to you because of one, two, three, and it would involve this and this. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, you wouldn't believe the amount of times that is not what happens. It's like, I found you and wanted to hear more about your journey. Why? <laughs> Uh, I think the theme of my entire our entire conversation and the theme of Gold Click, actually, to wrap it up in a nice little bow, <laughs> is uh, in- intentionality. I think that so much about what Gold Click does is about making people be intentional yeah. with what they show in their lives. I think so much about what Gold Click has done well is being intentional about who we're trying to work with and not trying to do too much. Mm-hmm. And I think in communications, I think someone who is really intentional with why they're getting in touch with someone and what they can offer mm-hmm. is really important. So if there was one thing I would say, you know, and when we're creating content, why are we doing it like that? Can we be in, you know, what's our intention behind it? There's one word I'd get people to think about. It's like, why am I doing this? Is this good? Is what I'm doing like, like intentionally thought out? Or have I just done it because I think that's what people should do? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think the world would be a lot smoother if people were a bit more intentional about what they were doing, things, and why. And look, we're all we're all just trying our best, you know. We're all just trying. We're all just at various stages along the spectrum of doing things well or growing or not doing things so well. No one has it perfected. Uh, we should all be in a constant state of growing and developing, and we should lean into that. And the notion of, you know, one day I'll be an expert or something. I don't know. It's not really, not really uh, what I think is the message that should come through. You know, I would say you can be experts at something, but you certainly never have a finished product. Yeah, on that note, on that note, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for your time. I think I I just want to end this by saying your entire journey um, is super inspiring for me, um, given that you've managed to actually make a sustainable career doing what you love, not kind of compromising on your values. uh, So so that's super inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. And um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. And we'll speak soon.